Our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> reading verses 8 to 22, 1 Peter 3, starting verse 8, please give your full attention once more, this is the word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are upon are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, uh, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was gone into heaven and is uh, at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to read our uh, sermon text this morning, which is from Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Before we do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon Uh, the reading and the preaching of that word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We do pray, Lord, that uh, the meditations of all of our hearts, our thinking, our reception, uh, Lord, would be pleasing to you. And we confess that we indeed do not live by bread alone, by mere substance for the physical body, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask, dear Lord, Give us a great appetite for this, your word, that it may strengthen and nourish our souls uh, this morning, uh, even to your glory. Be with us, we pray, Lord. Give us a focus and attention. uh, Grip our hearts and our minds to hear you speaking to us through your word. And we ask this in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 1. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, who, uh, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, uh, Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So for the reading of God's word, <clears throat> the grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word endures forever. <clears throat> We've been going through a kind of mini-series of sorts on the work of Jesus uh, the last number of weeks. We looked at his birth, his life, his death, <clears throat> and his burial. We've discussed the resurrection uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, um, that about that resurrection, that it is a historical reality, that it is central, that it is necessary. Um, it really happened and it really matters, uh, you remember. No hope without it. We come now this morning to the ascension of Christ, uh, the ascension of Christ. <clears throat> and for many of us, this is less thought about and it's less taught by many. Uh, many just don't think about the ascension too much. Um, it gets overshadowed, of course, by the glory of the resurrection. And surely the resurrection is the capstone uh, in the arc of our holy faith. Um, it is interesting, though, as we look historically um, at what the church has confessed about our faith, uh, it's interesting that something such as the Heidelberg Catechism, um, a bit older catechism than the one we use, though we affirm it, it's in our hymnal, the back of our liturgy, <clears throat> um, that catechism, it has only one question and answer about the resurrection, but it has four regarding the ascension. Four questions about the ascension of Christ. We'll look at why this is the case um, and why we should, with thanksgiving and enthusiasm, affirm with knowledge and joy that we believe and confess that Jesus ascended into heaven <clears throat> and his session, seated at the right hand of the Father. Our text this morning is from the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, the Acts of the Apostles. That's the full title, uh, old title of the book that we just call Acts. Uh, we're mostly familiar with the Gospels and the epistles, right, the letters um, in the New Testament. But what are the Acts of the Apostles? Right? This is uh, the history, this covenant history um, of our New, New Testament. What are those Acts? We look at and we begin uh, uh, to read the book. We notice that it is part two of Luke's writings, right? There's the Gospel of Luke and then there's Acts. That's his part two. He writes the Gospel and he continues and he References there in the first words of Acts, as we just heard, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach 
And so this is a continuing of the historical facts that Luke began to tell in his gospel, which begins like this. Uh, Inasmuch as many, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 1, in as many as have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You may have certainty. Um, That word taught, uh, um, by the way, is the word we get catechism from, which you've been catechized, right? You've been taught. That's all a catechism is, a teaching tool. But he says that you, why? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I know the order of our Gospels in our New Testament have been the way they are um, for a long time, forever, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, it's all that we've known for most of our life, but I, it would make sense to put Luke at the end of the Gospels. And when I read through them, that's how I read them. I read Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke into Acts um, to maintain this unity of his writings. It's fresh in your mind, go right into Acts. And I would encourage you sometime to do the same. Read the Gospel of Luke and then go right into Acts. <clears throat> Um, to see the, the unity, the continuity of what's going on. Uh, they're both written by Luke, of course, who's known as the beloved physician. Um, and both of his great books have the one purpose that we just read at the beginning of Luke, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You may have certainty. Luke has researched the life and ministry of Christ and got his information from uh, those who were eyewitnesses to Christ and his work. And then look back at Acts and notice that Luke is telling us that in the first book, the gospel, Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That to do and to teach. And notice he tells us what Jesus continued to do. He says this, until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Right. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, and his sovereign activity and working, he continues to teach his people through his word. Right? And so maybe a more accurate way of titling the book would be uh, the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's indeed, indeed what we see and what's going on. The apostles act because Christ has sent them and commissioned them to be apostles, the acts of the apostles. And Luke tells us, what Jesus did through the apostles to grow and to build the church. And the Acts of the Apostles is the accounting of the truth of the gospel and the triumph of Christ, as some have put it. The truth of the gospel and the triumph of Christ. And there we read of the challenges to the spread of that truth and that triumph, the challenges. And it's a magnificent historical accounting of what happened. But as we consider the ascension of Christ, and that most don't really give a whole lot of attention to it, why was the ascension given so much attention historically in the church? And we'll see that we should perhaps give more thought to Christ's ascension than we have previously done. The first reason the ascension should get our attention is because simply it's an accounting of God's word. It's an accounting of scripture. It is what the Holy Spirit tells us through Luke in Acts 1. It's an accounting of scripture. Again, it says that after Jesus rose, he presented himself alive to them, right, to the disciples, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And before that, he says, giving commands through the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus command them? 
One thing he commanded them was not to depart from Jerusalem, but to await for the promised, the promise of the Father, uh, verse 4. And the promise came. This promise came on the day of Pentecost, which was 10 days after his ascension. And one of these days, when Jesus appeared to them to talk about the kingdom of God, verse 6 tells us they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? Notice the difference. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and they're thinking about the kingdom of Israel, right? We make a mistake when we equate those two. Uh, Jesus answers them, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so he's telling them, again, to wait for the Spirit to give them power. And in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, right? A cloud took them, took him out of their sight, right? This is the accounting of Scripture. And notice again, a cloud took them out of, took him out of their sight. We've talked about this in the past, but consider again this, the use of clouds in Scripture, this imagery, what that means, what that stands for. Clouds, of course, are there when God comes before his people, Remember how God appears uh, when he led Israel out of Egypt. He comes in a pillar of cloud and fire. And when he appeared before Moses, when the temple was dedicated in a cloud, and when Isaiah saw Yahweh in the temple, a cloud, he appears. And when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain before his disciples, remember, a cloud. And how did God appear on the day of Pentecost? The room was filled with a cloud, right, with smoke, with a cloud. The appearance of clouds tells us of God's glory, that it is present with his people. And this is the case when Christ tells us that the divine glory is present in his ministry as well, right? He is the promised divine savior, promised long ago. And so Luke ends his first book in Luke 24, verse 51, saying this, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and were continually in the temple blessing God. Right? And so this is significant because it's in Canon Scripture, because it's in your Bible. He sought fit to include these things for us in the biblical text. But it's also of great significance to us because it leads us to deal with an answer to a handful of questions that um, we need to clarify that arise for us when we think about these things. So there's an accounting of Scripture and then the answers that we receive. Uh, remember in, in Matthew 28, the end of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus gives the great commission, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then remember what he says next. <clears throat> what the last few words of the gospel are. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always. And if you're trying to follow and you're trying to understand, you might ask, if Christ has ascended back into heaven, how did he keep this promise from Matthew? Right? How did he keep this promise to be with you always to the end of the age? <clears throat> it, right? You get the, you know, the kind of, if he ascended versus with you always. Right? And what is the biblical answer to this question? <clears throat> is that Christ is true man and true God, right? We know this. It's what we confess to believe to be true, what Scripture tells us. 
Christ is man, he is the God-man, true man and true God. Right? John 1, the Word was God, and that all, uh, he, uh, all that was created was created through him. And then he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Right? You see these both. He was conceived in the uh, womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was born a human baby, a real baby. And so theologically, you know, we answer the, this question by referring to Christ's two natures, right? His two natures. Christ's human nature, right? He's one person with two natures, divine and human. Uh, and in Christ's human nature, he is not on earth. But in his divinity and majesty and grace and spirit, he is never absent from us. Never absent from us. Christ has two natures. And the church of the ages, through time, has affirmed and proclaimed them both, God and man because that's what Scripture teaches. And then when we affirm this, if we're a bit more theologically precise and thoughtful in thinking about it, right? how the Bible talks about this and how we parse it out, you might think of another question and realize that another answer is needed. <clears throat> if Jesus' human nature is ascended and in glory and his divine nature is ever-present, aren't we dividing or separating his two natures? Right? That's the question. And I want to ask you to parse this out, uh, you know, personally. But some of you might not have ever thought about this, right? How does this work out? How is this in reality? Some of you never ever thought about, thought about this question. Some of you might not think it's really something that needs to be answered. But it really is something that needs to be answered. And answers demand it. God is not pleased for us to think wrongly about him. Right? This is why. It's not just being precise for precision's sake. God wants us to think rightly about him. Right? How do we know that? Well, remember at the end of Job, the book of Job, that long book, the Lord rebukes Job's friends. And he says in Job 42, 7, the Lord said to Elphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant has. My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken to me what is right. And so we want to be precise. We want to speak rightly of the God of all creation. I won't go into great detail, but the historic church, right, Orthodox Christianity, has insisted on clarity here because of our desire to be faithful to and in line with Scripture, right, what it teaches. And so the church has and does affirm that the two natures of Christ, human and divine, are unconfused, unchangeable, indivisible, and inseparable, right? And this has ramifications for us, particularly regarding the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper. What is our view of the Lord's Supper? We Reformed Presbyterians, Protestants, say that the bread and the wine are not physically transformed into the body and blood of Christ, right? That's what the Church of Rome teaches. We do affirm Christ's real presence, though, right? His real presence in the Supper, <clears throat> Now, how is that? Right, don't lose me. This is, we can all get this. Um, our Lutheran brothers say that Christ is in, with, and under the bread and wine because he is present in both natures. Right? And the Lutherans are trying to, admirably, trying to protect against the error of separating the two natures of Christ. And so for them, this, this is the answer that's demanded. So they come to their belief concerning the Lord's Supper that they have. But we as Reformed Presbyterians... Uh, and the Reformed Church historically has affirmed that because divinity is not limited, right? The, the divine is not limited and is present everywhere, right? Omnipresence. 
Because of this, it's clear that Christ's divinity is beyond the bounds of his humanity that's been taken on to him. And so at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. Right? This is uh, the way that the Heidelberg Catechism puts it is this. It says, so Jesus Christ has two natures. Right? And so this is a summary of all that I just said, if that wasn't clear. He has two natures, human and divine, and the divine is not limited by the human. You see that? Right? So, so, so the, 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 um, the intention to not separate the natures um, of our Lutheran brothers ends up equating the two or ends up refusing to distinguish them. Not separate them, but they're different things, right? They're not the same. And so <clears throat> we've seen this as an account of God's word, uh, the ascension, right? Uh, and the answer to questions regarding the ascension. We want to think rightly about the Lord. And then finally and wonderfully, the ascension, uh, we, we see the advantage to us of Christ's ascension, right? The advantage to us of Christ's ascension. And if that was ethereal or, you know, out there, this, this, is, this hits home, right? This is the important, this is a, personally for us, right? The advantage of the ascension for the people of God. Because Jesus is ascended, he is our advocate in heaven, in the presence of his Father. He's our advocate, and that's something we, as sinners, weak and fallen and needy, need, an advocate before the Father. First John 2 says, if, anyone, if one of us does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. His very presence before the throne of grace eternally pleads your case, right? Eternally pleads your case. And because Jesus has ascended, it is our sure pledge that Christ my head will also take me up to himself. And I'm united to him by faith. And this means his promise is mine, right? Where I am, you will be also, remember. Because Jesus has ascended, he sends his spirit to me, to you on earth as a pledge. His spirit is a down payment, you've heard it called, in your heart that one day you shall see him face to face. Until then, by the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And because you are united to him, what does this mean? It means his righteousness is your righteousness. His righteousness is your righteousness. And that's a glorious thing. His ascension presupposes his perfection. And that is a sure confirmation that all of your sins, right, grasp this, have been paid for and dealt with, all of them. And so in our lives, right, in, in the trenches of our pilgrim life, in all that we go through and all that we live with, do you have trouble believing? Do you have trouble believing that you have value as a person on this planet, a fallen person in a fallen world? Do you have ever trouble, trouble believing that God would ever love someone like you? Do you have trouble believing that God would continue to love someone like you? Who keeps failing, is weak, and blows it again and again. If you have a sen sensitive, tender conscience, these are the things that we go through and struggle with, right? But believe, brothers and sisters, believe what he's telling us. God in Christ has dealt with all of your sin and failing and weakness and blowing it. We're not all of those things dealt with in full on the cross. He could never have ascended into heaven. 
and sat at the right hand of the Father. You see, his accomplished work is proof and confirmation that, that what he said, it is finished. It is true, right? The work has been done. He didn't skip out. It's finished. And that all he has paid for all the sins of his people and his accomplished work for his people is confirmed and proved in the ascension. Believe it, brothers and sisters. Believe it because it's true. And so let us go from here also believing and trusting that the ascension was a public testimony and demonstration of Christ and therefore your righteousness. If it was true of Christ and it was, then it's true of you if your faith is in him. If your faith is in him. <clears throat> You're indeed clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you place your faith in and are trusting in him for life. The ascension is part of the gospel story. The ascension is part of the gospel story. That's why we, with the church, for hundreds of years, has proclaimed together Christ has died, he has risen, he will come again. May you embrace, brothers and sisters, the ascension, the truth of Christ's bodily absence, right, and the glory of his divine presence. You know, I know many people that I've talked to, and maybe you've thought this yourself, we, we, we often wish that we would have been blessed to see, seen, and been with Jesus when he was here on earth. But think again of the end of Luke. Think again of what's going on there. Remember on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus speaks with them and teaches them, it's the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then it says in verse 49, stay here until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay here until you're clothed with power from on high. This is language of investiture, right? Jesus was with them, and they were still dejected. Why? It's because they didn't recognize him. They didn't get it. And then he was gone, and they were happy, right? It says great joy. They were exceedingly joyful because they knew better. They saw why it was better for him to be gone. It is better, brothers and sisters. It's better to be on this side of the resurrection and the ascension and never having heard his voice with our own ears than to be on the other side and have missed what is going on like his brothers did. May we delight in this risen Lord and ascended Lord and Savior. May we flee to him in all things. And may we remember and trust in his ascension that he accomplished all that needed to be done to bring us pure and clean and whole before our Heavenly Father. Rejoice, dear Christian. Rejoice and confess your belief that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and there rules and reigns and ever intercedes for you before your Heavenly Father. What peace and comfort from this reality from Scripture. Praise God. May be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We are so in awe of the things that you've done for us. Lord, we, uh, we can barely wrap our mind around this, uh, the, the simple outlines of these things. But Lord, we pray that we praise you that we can, that we can know and we can understand what you've told us and what you've done. Lord, help us to, with faith, believe uh, that these things are true, that we are truly dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Lord, help us to uh, rejoice in our union with Jesus. Help us to live our life out of that reality with gratitude, uh, Lord, that, that you would be praised, uh, Lord. And, of course, following that, 
uh, we would be blessed by it. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.